It is so good to be here this morning. I've been looking forward to joining you guys. I love it when Luke comes over the mountain and preaches with us. I must admit, though, Vivian, we could have uh, closed the morning after that word. It was amazing and so on point, and what a blessing. Um, me taking my watch off means absolutely nothing, uh, except that my messages come up on it and are a massive distraction, so let me do that quickly. Get rid of that. Um, it's so good to be back in the valley. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I used to live in the valley. Uh, we moved here, Tracy, my wife, and I moved here by mistake about 15 years ago. <laughs> okay, not by mistake. That's not entirely true. We had no choice. No, I mean, it's not that we wouldn't have moved here had we had a choice. I better explain the story. So, you know, we can make plans in life, and, and we go through various stages of making plans, and you plan to get married, and then when you uh, realize you're, you're planning to have children, that affects all your other plans, because that's a big deal. So I planned that by the time my first child would be born, we would be financially secure. I would be a sought-after famous film director and I uh, would have lucrative jobs and Tracy would be really uh, fulfilled in her career and by the time our first child was born, we'd be settled and secure, we'd be thriving in our respective careers and uh, we'd have this kind of stress-free existence and we could bring up this perfect child in this harmonious and safe world. When we fell pregnant, <laughs> the company I'd started with a bunch of friends went belly up because our, our client failed to pay all the overages and we were held personally responsible. We had to shut the doors of the office, go our separate ways. Tracy and I had to move in with my incredibly generous mother-in-law in, in Piers Hill in Fishuk. We had absolutely nothing. Uh, and uh, thanks to my mother-in-law's generosity, we ended up living there for two years while I got my career back on its feet and myself back on my feet. My credit cards were maxed. I was busy selling my pride and joy in my DVD collection to buy electricity and food. And it was in this insecure world that Jack and Emily eventually, three years later, were born. Oh, the plans we can make. <laughs> and then what actually happens? Which brings me to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. We're in message 6 of the subsection, True Wisdom. And my heading for today is, True Wisdom plans faithfully without the illusion of control. True Wisdom plans faithfully without the illusion of control. Of control. We've been really putting a microscope on the book of James, and I've been loving it because, well, we've been drawing all we can from every verse, from all these texts, and, and I keep thinking about James, this half-brother of Jesus. Where did he get all this practical, daily life wisdom to, to write this incredible book? It's a very practical book, but think about it. All the other disciples, they got three years with Jesus. James was his brother. Now, we know initially James didn't see Jesus as the son of God who would eventually save him from all his naughtiness. But when that penny dropped, when that dawning came, and James saw Jesus for who he truly was, God incarnate, I bet James was like, well, now that makes sense. 
That's why he always said that instead of that. That's why Jesus did things differently. That's why I remember this time, Jesus, that was extraordinary. But wow, I can see why he did what he did. So the disciples got three years and, and James got maybe two decades of Jesus' teaching, Jesus' example, Jesus' wisdom to tap into, to lead his church, and he could write this amazing letter to us. He just tapped into childhood memories. I write my message today tapping into Luke's notes, <laughs> a fantastic Tim Keller sermon, which blew my mind, some Michael Eaton, some Douglas Moo, and other commentaries, but let's go for it. Looking at verse 13, boasting about tomorrow. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what, what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. What is James talking about? Is James saying, Derek, you twit. What were you thinking planning all that stuff for when your child would be born? Is James anti-planning? Or maybe is this James's main point? Christians, Christ followers, should plan their lives in such a way as to reflect, reflect their faith in our sovereign Lord and desire to live for his kingdom. Christians should plan their lives in such a way as to reflect their faith in our sovereign Lord and desire to live for his kingdom. Let's find out. Is James anti-planning? Let's give this passage some context. Let's see who James is talking to or referring to, at least for his example here. James is tackling a worldview that was quite prevalent amongst the wealthy merchants of the day. It seems like their abundance of wealth in the lives of these believers had allowed them some kind of independence from God, like an autonomy uh, from Him. It turns out that their wealth has been dangerous to their spiritual state, and it has blinded them to some crucial realities. So James is using them as an example in the church or to the church. But James wasn't only talking to wealthy merchants of his day, was he? His very general letter was for the church scattered all over the place. James was talking to a broader audience that includes Christ followers who maybe want to be wealthy and actually anybody with goals, ambitions, things to achieve, those with to-do lists. James was talking to you and me. Is James just talking about money? No, he's not just talking about money and, and going and making money. Many times before this and after this, in the book of James, James does address money, and he addresses the Christ follower in relation to wealth and business. But that's not the overriding theme of this particular passage. It's much more than that. So let's just quickly clarify what the problem is not. It's not that the receivers of the letter are in a secular vocation. James is not calling everybody to full-time ministry here. And it's not that they're making a profit. James is not addressing capitalism here. 
James is also not taking exception to the fact, uh, to the act of planning for the future in and of itself. James is also not condemning wise, wise stewardship of time, wealth, and money, and taking out insurance, investing, and saving for retirement. These are not the things James is dealing with. Instead of mentioning money, James could just as easily have said, hey, you guys who are saying, next year I'm going to go to this university and I'm going to study this thing and I'm going to have this job. Or he could have said to people who said, next year we're going to have a child and we're going to start a family and we're going to have this many children. In other words, he's not talking about money or travel or family or business. He's talking about one of the most normal things we do. We try to exert some control over our circumstances. We plan. Tomorrow I'm going to do this or that. This year I, I will, I have a five-year plan, right? In five years I will, and I will do, and I will have, and I will have achieved. It's absolutely natural and normal to try and get some control over the circumstances of your life by planning, by setting goals, by setting up a schedule. If we look at verse 13, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Today or tomorrow we will go to that city. That's a place. They're planning about a place. Spend a year there, time, planning their time, and do business and make money. Planning, it's a goal. Setting goals is something we do all the time. Some of us do it very formally. Some of us do it very strategically for our businesses. But all of us do it. Now is James saying, you shouldn't do that. If only it were that easy. If only he was saying, hey, listen, guys, you who are saying to this year, I'm going to do this and that and plan this and that. Don't do that. As Christ follows, we don't do that. We don't plan. But we need to take a closer look on the two verses on planning. In verse 13, he says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. And then he goes, instead, you ought to say something, something, we will something, something, do this or that. You see how in verse 13 he says, we will do this, we will go. And then down in 15, again he says, instead, you ought to say, and still adds, we will. We will do this or that. But James is saying there is a fundamental difference between the way we do it and the way we should do it. James exposes a problem with the thinking of these believers. He constantly uses the word will. We will do this. It's revealing the certainty of their thinking. We will do this or that. They've got it all worked out. They're going to travel to a place. They're going to make a good profit just like they planned to do. And they've given little thought or no th of their plans. They were planning their lives apart from God. James tells us that the normal way we go about making our plans for a day, for a week, for a month, or for life is fundamentally evil, it's wicked, and it's boastful. How? At the end of the section, let's jump to the last verse. When you get to verse 17, and he says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, well, they sin. That's sinning. They sin. When you first look at that verse, it doesn't seem connected to the rest of the verses. It's quite an interesting one. It looks like it's a stand, like, like he's laying some, down some sort of new principle. And this is sometimes how we can read it. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. But then there's the word then in there. 
That, notice that word then in the, in, in, the, in the verse. Then ties the verse to the previous verses. It's not a standalone verse. It's completely relevant to planning. But how? You see, we tend to think of sins as the things we do and not so much as the things we should do but fail to do. These merchants that James is referring to, they're an example of people who've made a profit and they've made profit the goal, not the kingdom of God. And in doing so, they've committed the sin of omission. And I'm going to delve much deeper into the sin of omission uh, later this morning. You see, the opposite of this kind of planning tries to plan according to the will of God and the works that will accomplish his will in the world rather than merely generating profit. The kind of things that James draws our attention to throughout the rest of the letter, which we can plan to incorporate in our business dealings, are things that Christopher Church highlights. He's got these three points. Number one, caring for the marginalized and the oppressed. Number two, avoiding discriminatory practices. Number three, showing mercy to others. Put those in your business plans. In contrast, these traders seem to focus exclusively on profits. And we do well to remember Jesus' words in Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. How much have you been given? How much have you been given? Practically, I think it's also good. Let's deal with financial planning. Christ follows having planned, and in the implementing of these plans, we must seek to do the good works with our profits. And I think it's very important to, to um, understand that profits are not only financial gains. Profits are not only financial gains. Profits are uh, they also our privileged position, our education, our experience, our talents, and our time. Barton, Veerman, and Wilson, who wrote the Life Application Commentary on James, they suggest five practices to avoid. We're just getting nice and practical here. Avoid envisioning retirement as a time to simply enjoy the fruit of one's labor. Uh, I have a gym membership at a club in Claremont that's quite well known. Uh, it's been there forever. Because it's been there forever, a large portion of the people who have a gym membership there have also been there forever. And we've got a huge retired population there. And so I'll go and I'll gym in the morning. And the one time um, I had been gymming, and I saw this elderly gentleman who I'd gotten to know at the gym, a lot of very successful people in the neighborhood. It's a wealthy neighborhood. And a lot of these guys, these elderly guys, have achieved incredible things, set up massive companies, some of them very involved in politics, some of them very involved in all sorts of things. And I'd finished my gym session, and I was fixing to leave, and I watched this guy. He had, he had got out the showers, and he was busy going out the front door, and there's a little restaurant where I eat an egg sandwich next to uh, the, the door that comes out. And he came out the door, and he kind of stood there like this, and he kind of went like this, and then like this. And then he, he went down the, the, the path to his car, and I thought to myself, my goodness, you have nothing to do today. And I felt so sorry for him, but I felt so sorry for the world. Here's a guy who's probably got such a brain, 
such incredible experience, such amazing gifts and talents and time and resources and money to reinvest. And he didn't know what to do with his day. Avoid seeing work merely as the means to make money to buy what we want. Avoid viewing material prosperity as a symbol of our independence from God. Avoid imagining God as aloof from our money matters. Avoid making our decisions without considering Christ. It's arrogant. Oh, it's arrogant. As it is, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The clear problem that James is correcting is the arrogance and lack of thought for God's will and the illusion of personal control. It's evil. This kind of mentality that James is taking on here is the arrogance that we can carry on thinking, we can engineer our future and in our planning as if we're in control. They've made their own plans and they know how things are going to work out. I suppose they also have no room for God. They've got it covered on their own. This kind of exclusion of God and the self-reliance, even in the marketplace or in the business realms of our lives, is simply arrogant. Confidence in our own effectiveness is prideful and leads to greater levels of pride. Boasting in this context, uh, Luke brought it up earlier, it carries an older meaning uh, than just bragging. It's to put your confidence in something. That's why, as Luke mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, it says you can put your confidence in your weakness. You can boast in your weakness. You can boast in Christ's death. You can put your confidence in, in Christ's death. But James is saying, don't put your confidence in your own abilities. Why? James is bursting the illusion of control. James is bursting the illusion of control. Verse 14. Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James makes an assertion. What? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Followed by a question. What is your life? And in doing so, he reminds them of who they truly are. A mist. Macho, he points out that the words chosen by James, they draw attention to our ignorance our frailty, and our dependence on God. The believers simply do not know what the future holds, not even tomorrow. They are the creatures, not the creator. The word mist can be translated as vapor or smoke, but the meaning is clear. One minute here and gone the next. It is here now and quickly disappearing. Human, human life is transitory. It's, it's temporary. Illness accidents all out of the blue they remind us of this when Steve Jobs uh, died of cancer he was one of the most influential wealthy individuals out there especially after uh, the invention of the iPhone I mean sure enough it was good enough just with the Mac but then the iPhone came along and just rocketed him and with all his money and fame and education and achievements they couldn't add a day to his life they could not save him life changes like the wind that moves a cloud of smoke or morning sun that evaporates the fog. As the book of Proverbs reminds us, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And the psalmist, he says, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure, 
Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom in vain. They rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it'll finally be. And Jesus obviously gives us the parable of the a rich fool in Luke 12. Don't be a fool. Don't be foolish. How many of you had big plans for 2020? <laughs> How many of you thought to yourself, you know what I'm going to do this year? I'm going to spend five months at home. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to go out except to pick and pay with a little packet. And while I'm there shopping for my crop bottom pants and my rotisserie chicken, I'm going to be too scared to touch anything, too scared to stand near anybody, and terrified of sneezing. How many of you felt you were in control over the last three years? I didn't. Not at all. For some, it was the sudden fear of death, hospitalization, sickness. For many of us, it was job loss, financial insecurity. For others, it was loneliness, desperate loneliness, frustration, disappointment, instant loss of power and control over our circumstances. What happened to your five-year plan in 2020? But we forget that we're just human, right? To be human is to be limited, to be finite, and to be a Christ follower is to be dependent, mindful that we live our lives at the mercy of the sovereign Lord of the world. It's true, God does give us responsibility and resources to steward, but he never gives us control. And this is a difficult lesson to learn, but many a sleepless night and much despair in the midst of disappointment could be avoided if we just take James's words to heart. How can we avoid this? Well, here's how. Here's how. An invitation to a better plan. James adds a key truth to their understanding whilst planning. It's an expression of dependence on God that has become known as the Jacobian condition, the Latin phrase for under the reservation of James. Jacobia. It's not just that their lives are fleeting. They need to understand that they're not in control, but God is. Notice in verse 13, he tells us what you're not supposed to say. Then in verse 15, he tells us what you are supposed to say. If it is the Lord's will, we will live. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What James is saying is that you should take any situation you're in, any decision you're about to make, any plan, any emotional state you're in, and you must at that moment remind yourself that the only reason you are standing there breathing is by the grace of God. Do you realize how different your attitude to life would be if you actually believed that? James says, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this and that. Our very lives are contingent upon the Lord. The difference is, you need to say in Latin, it's the word Deo Volente. Deo Volente. We will live and do this. What does Deo Volente mean? God willing. God willing. The world in which we live in, it's not a closed system, but open to the working of the sovereign Lord who made it. Our visible material world is not all there is. As Christ follows, we're to be those who plan and desire as though God is in control. Well, because he is. Paul lived this way. 
In Acts 18, when Paul said to the Ephesian believers, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Or Romans 1, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at at last succeed in coming to you. But this Jacobian condition is not some abracadabra phrase, some magical spell to be tagged on to the end of all our plans. James is not saying we must sprinkle our language with this pious jargon. I don't expect my mate Gareth to say to me, hey Derek, next Tuesday at 6 a.m. we're going to go trail running Deo Volante. John Wesley, in his teaching to young pastors, he goes out of his way to say, avoid pious jargon. But there are people who feel that what James is saying, we must constantly utter things like, if the Lord wills, and the Lord is really leading me, and the Lord is telling me this, and so we must add these Christianese pious jargon onto everything you say. Instead of saying, this is what I think, you rather say, the Lord has shown me. Instead of saying, this is what I want to do, we say, God willing, we should do this, and so on. It's not just irritating to non-Christians to hear somebody talk like that. James is against arrogance. And when you talk like that, you put yourself above contradiction, right? I even heard of a guy at our church when I was a teenager. He went up to a girl and said, God has told me that we're to get married. And she was like, um. You see, when you say stuff like that, what are you doing? You're making it impossible for somebody to say, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, who am I to question if you say the Lord has said? It's manipulative and it's arrogant, and James is very much against that. Nor is Deo Valenti a fatalistic cop-out that excuses us from taking responsibility for our actions. But God told me to do it. It was God's will that I did it. That's the opposite of what James is saying. James is saying the whole problem is you're putting yourself in the place of God. And by making yourself hard to contradict, you're refusing to take responsibility for your opinion. Can you see that? Oh, I'm telling you exactly what God said. But rather, James is saying, there's a way of desiring and planning towards the future in such a way that we seek God's will. And we want to implement it in our planning. He's saying, look at your life, every part of your life, and say, this is all grace. The fact that I'm alive. The fact that I breathe, the fact that my heart is beating. If God gave me what I deserved, I'd be wiped out. It's only by grace that I'm living. If God wills, I will live. It's only by his will. And here's what's so brilliant about this. And this is my favorite part. This, here's what's so mind-blowing about this. Because when things are going really badly, and you start to worry, and the anxiety builds, you can just say, It's all by grace. Even your success, that was also just by grace. God's in charge of this. You do not hold yourself up. So what are you worried about? Who needed to hear that this morning? You do not hold yourself up. It is the knowledge that God has a plan and is in control and then we get to live our lives doing His will. Then we plan to do just that as best we can. 
And it makes sense that we should evaluate our plans, even our plans for profit, and ask ourselves, is this in, court, in accordance with the scriptures and, and what the scriptures teach about the will of God? Planning without God is arrogant, and it leads to greater sin. Sorry, allergies. <laughs> Planning without God is arrogant, and it leads to greater sin. As I said, there's more to the sin of omission. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. What is he saying here? He says there's a sin that's so pervasive because to commit it is to do nothing at all. It's not to exert any energy at all. You commit by simply going along with the flow. You commit it by simply not doing anything, by not exerting yourself. If you do what comes naturally, you're committing a sin in this regard. You're sinning. What is the sin? It's simply to go about your life, make your plans, operate as normal, and to forget God. That's what he's saying. He says one of the worst sins, one of the most serious sins, one of the most fundamental sins is to simply just to forget God. Not to break this or that commandment, but simply to go about your life as if God doesn't matter. It's one of the most pathological and fundamental sins there is. One of the most terrible and dangerous sins there is. To simply look at the future, enter a relationship, start a business, run a business, make a decision, go about your lives, make goals without a reference to God. In other words, here's the sin. Living, planning, or working, or operating without continual, relentless reliance and reference to God intellectually and emotionally. To fail in any regard to connect what you are thinking, feeling, doing right now, to connect this vitally with who God is. And what he's done for you. James says, to say tomorrow and tomorrow I'm going to do such and such is a very wicked thing. You've got to say, God willing, I will do that. James is saying to plan anything, to do anything without a thought for God's will, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's terrible to God and it's terrible to you. It's destructive in your relationship with God. It offends him, it hurts him, and it destroys you. In what way is it so bad for God? In what way is it so bad for us, and how can we avoid it? How can we avoid this sin? Firstly, what's so bad about it? Well, how would you like to be forgotten? There's almost nothing worse. There is nothing worse that you can do. There's a writer who once said, um, there's something far worse than having a terrible book review. There's something far worse than having uh, uh, people attack you, people say horrible things about your book. There's something worse than hostile book reviews. And that's to have no reviews at all. Much worse. There's something much worse than being criticized. It's to be ignored. Because when you're ignored, you're treated as a nobody. You're treated as a vapor. You're treated as transitory or temporary. It's an awful thing to be forgotten, to not be invited to the party, especially if it's somebody you love, somebody you respect, somebody you owe. There's nothing worse. In the Old Testament, you'll see many times one of the great things that God denounces is forgetting him. Just carelessly going through life, forgetting him, only thinking about him on Sundays. Psalm 9, David writes this incredible song, and it's all about the wicked and those who forget God. But towards the end of the song, he says, he sings this, those that remember God will not be forgotten by God. You see, God's saying something very fair. He says, if you forget me, I'll forget you. What does it mean to be remembered? 
It means to be recognized, to be treated as someone of substance, to be focused on. It means to be ascribed glory. What does glory mean? Weight or value. And what's the opposite then of glory? To be forgotten. God says, if you forget me, I'll forget you. But if you remember me, I'll remember you. I'll focus on you. If you focus on me and you acknowledge me, I will focus on you and acknowledge you. You don't forget what's important, do you? So why do you forget God? You know what it's like to be treated as a vapor? It's not just that James says to forget God is, is evil. Of course it's evil. It hurts. It's out of touch with reality. But it's also, let's look at this passage. It's boastful, it's arrogant, and it's proud. When you forget God by definition, you assume God's place. That's bad. How do you make a plan without reference to God? And when you don't know, you don't know what the future holds, but he does. He holds the future in his hand. You see, we have omni-words for God, right? We have again. We've got omniscience, which means omniscience, all-knowing, everything at once. He must know, because if he didn't, it wouldn't exist. We've got omnipotence, which means there's no limit to what he does. All-powerful. He's all-powerful. If he wants to do something, it happens. And then there's omnipresence, which means he's everywhere, all at once, no limitations. He is self-existent and independent, a no-conditioned sovereign king, sovereign being. But if we forget God, you see, the heart is, above, is deceitful above all things. We don't really care about righteousness, but we'd really like that omniscience. We don't really care about holiness, but we'd really like that omnipotence. When you forget God, you assume these attributes, and suddenly we're back in the Garden of Eden eating apples with Adam and Eve. You're acting as if you have the right to call the shots in your life, and as if you have enough knowledge to know what's going on with God. Assume the place of God. What's so bad about that? Think about it. You start to believe that God doesn't need to be involved because maybe God won't get it right. So you're going to go it alone. Then guess what? You're saying he's no longer God. But what if you say, hey, you know what? I'd like to go to UCT and I'd like to study this and, and I'd like to have that job. I'd like to marry that person. I'd like to move there. I'd, I, I'd like to do these things. I'm hoping for these things. I'm praying for these things. I've set this goal, but I don't know because I don't know everything. I'm not omniscient. I'm not God. I'm like a child. I don't know what is best for me. I don't always know what's right and wrong. I don't know. Well, if you say that, you're remembering God. All by grace. All by grace. You're not in control. You do not hold yourself up. Don't you see? God holds us up. Let's take the pressure off our shoulders right now. Okay, we're going to start landing. The band can come up. How can God be so good? How can God be so good? As mentioned in Psalm 9, David sings, if we forget him, he forgets us. But we have forgotten him, haven't we? I mean, be honest. So, we should be forgotten. James, where's the hope? James, where's the hope? James says, guys, just remember, it's strictly God's grace. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Here's how. 
There's nothing worse than being forgotten. If, if you know the musical um, Jesus Christ Superstar, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, they've got in the final uh, part of the, the musical, they've got Jesus on the cross saying the last words. And uh, he gets to the line and he says this. They've written these words for Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forgotten me? Because that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was forgotten. He was utterly and completely ignored by the only person in the universe who mattered to him. And it was hell. But don't you see that because Jesus was forgotten, he got the forgetting. He was forgotten for us. He got the forgottenness that we should have had. That is why God can say in the book of Isaiah, I will not forget you. I have written your name in the, palm, in the palms of my hands. How can God not forget us? How can he be a God of grace? Because he forgot his son so that he could remember us. And because he always remembers us, we can remember him constantly and live a life of triumph and have fullness of life today, tomorrow, and through all of our future plans to come. By the grace of God, go I. Amen. True wisdom plans faithfully without the illusion of control. Christians should plan their lives in such a way as to reflect their faith in our sovereign Lord and desire to live for His kingdom. Let's think through both our short-term and our long-term planning. Our challenge isn't to create a culture without any planning, but rather God wants us to plan with the sense of His sovereignty and His will, to make decisions with the sense of the Lord's will and working in our world, to never forget Him in the mundane and the massive plans and choices we make. Thank you.